Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Ralph Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. On the weeks that Kevin and I will not be dropping new interviews, we decided it would be fun to go back and reintroduce you to some of our favorite interviews we have done with past guests. Before he won the Tony Award for Town, we got to sit down with the legendary Andre DeShields. Yes, we feel that this was not an interview, uh, but a uh, spiritual awakening. Andre didn't just discuss his career with us, he discussed philosophy, spirituality, confidence, and the magic of life. We sat there enraptured with his openness and felt when the interview was done, that we had somehow ascended to a higher plane. Uh, if you've seen Andre on stage, and I hope you've all seen him in Hades Town at this point, for which he won the Tony Award, you see his magic. But when he's less than three feet away from you and he looks right into your eyes, you see this deep, deep humanity that is absolutely life-changing. That's beautiful, Rob. It's true. Um, and from so from May 23rd, 2016, here is our interview with the future Tony Award winner, Andre DeShields. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and on Instagram on Broadway Curtain Podcast. Ooh, full name. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Today's guest has stopped just about every show he has ever appeared in, and after over 40 <laughs> years in the business, that's really saying something. Mm, yes. From The Wiz to The Full Monty, from Ain't Misbehaving to Play On, no one can take a stage like our guest. But like all legends, he's not only an actor, he's a director, choreographer, educator, pioneer, trailblazer, Capricorn, and a true 
artist. For all of you who said you wanted to meet the wizard, well, here he is, Mr. Andre DeShields. It's my pleasure. Let me tell you. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You've come to the right place. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's what I wanted to hear. Oh, my goodness. So, Andre, where did you get started at? Where were you born? I was born in Dundalk, Maryland, which is just outside of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Okay. I lived in Dundalk, Maryland until I was perhaps four. Mm-hmm. The big move to the big city, Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And that's where I am from, essentially, yeah. and importantly. Although, I'm a senior citizen now. <laughs> so when I went to apply for my Social Security benefits, and the first question they ask is, where were you born? It's a test. And I said, Baltimore, Maryland. And they said, you're not the right person. <gasps> and then I remembered, I was born in Dundalk. And I said, done that. <laughs> and they said, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <Right>? good. <laughs> so all you, young, all you young beginners out there, remember that. That's right. Where you, <laughs> where you really, really came, came from. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, did you, were you introduced to, to musical theater or to dance at a young age? Find Kevin, this is all about alchemy. And uh, I am an alchemist, and I encourage any young person who wants to pursue this industry professionally to to reassociate themselves with the ancient wisdom of alchemy. Now, why do I say that? Because when I was adult enough to have conversations with my mother and my father, my mother shared with me that her lifelong dream was to have been a chorus girl. And she didn't use the term dancer. She said chorus girl. Of course, Her parents thought that was much too indecent of a career to pursue for a young colored girl. Her parents not being too far from the Emancipation Proclamation. So their advice to my mother was, you're not going to shuffle your way through life. My father and I had a similar conversation. He wanted to be a singer, and he was a fine singer, a tenor. His parents said to him, how do you expect to bring the bacon home to the table pursuing such an insecure career? Both of them deferred their dreams to become performing artists. That's an introduction to why I think it was the X and Y chromosomes that possessed their deferred dreams at the moment of conception that set my destiny out before me and from my first conscious thought it was always about entertaining so I believe I know in my core that my first service was to manifest the deferred dreams of my parents and my second service was to have a grand time on the path that had chosen me did your family ever get to see you on stage yes (laughs) now when I was growing up in Baltimore a a a classic inner-city ghetto, tenement slum, that whole Uh story. Of course, I was cautioned. Boy, get serious about your life. You're going to be an entertainer? No. You think you're Sammy Davis Jr.? Of course, I thought I was, but (laughs) I didn't respond that way to them. Mm -hmm. I learned very quickly at an early age that I had to keep that dream close to my vest because it was only going to be sullied by authority figures, or even my peer group. So it wasn't until my sophomore year in college that I actually had an opportunity to act on a stage. From the time that I was growing up in Baltimore until I went to college, I was acting. But that was just to 
be able to get out of that neighborhood safely. Where would you uh, find chances to uh, act? Well, in my daily life. Ah, you know. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're if you're a young black boy growing up in the ghetto, you're a target if you even express interest in something as fay as the arts. So it it was a protective shield not to share that dream right. with anyone. Yeah, hold it close to my my vest. So was that Wilmington College? Is that yes? Where during my sophomore year at Wilmington College, yeah. when a um, drama instructor, James Marty Gilbert, hmm. and I wanted to remember that name because he was a huge influence on my life, not yeah. only as a performer, but as a young man growing up in the fiery 60s. Mm-hmm. And he has continued to watch over my career. And the last time we actually saw each other face-to-face was in Chicago when I was doing Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. He would travel the country. He must have been so proud. To see, yes, he was proud. Mm-hmm. He was, he was um, over the moon that he was responsible for keeping me on that straight and narrow course that finally took me to national attention. So he said to me, quote, I've always wanted to do A Raisin in the Sun. But we've never had the talent on campus to achieve that. Now, you must understand that Wilmington College is a Quaker school, very pristine campus. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I attended it, there were maybe 1,000 students. Mm -hmm. And perhaps 25 of the students were persons of color. And not maybe a few of them were interested in the arts. But the arts or the theater majors were predominantly and overwhelmingly young white men. Which is another part of that story that needs to be told through all of my years in college. Very seldom did I have an opportunity to perform on what was considered the main stage because all the plum roles went to the young white right. men. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, I could have done what the newspaper boy in uh, You Can't Take It With You or yeah. the periphery er- roles. Yes, but yeah. the idea Definitely. of having a King Lear, you know, and you playing Lear is out of the question, you know, at a school. Like oh, that. that wasn't even a dream at the yeah. time. Yeah. Just trying to get cast in a main stage show yeah. was Mount Everest. Yeah. yeah. So to get back to the story with James Gilbert, uh, he says, but I think I've finally found my Walter Lee Younger. I'm 19 years old, and I'm getting an opportunity to play Walter Lee Younger. This was a gift that I could not have imagined because it's now 1966. Those inner cities that I was telling you we grew up in were now the center of what we call urban insurrection, Mm -hmm. riots. They were being burned to the ground. I'm in the safety of the walls of this pristine Quaker college about to do Walter Lee Younger. What does that do for me? Well, it knocks off my shoulders that huge chip that I was carrying as a young black man Mm -hmm. who had been taught that not only is white might, but it's also right. So to say that I started college with an overwhelming sense of inferiority is sort of understating it. But having the opportunity to play Walter Lee Younger was a healing experience. It lifted a lot of that anxiety, a lot of that, as I said before, the chip on my shoulder, a lot of that need to point at Mr. Charlie and blame him for all of my... Yeah. Distress and anxiety. Yeah. It was erased. So at 19, I was beginning a journey like a tabula rasa, mm-hmm. like a blank slate. So I could be, uh, I could choose the impressions that I want 
yeah. wanted to make the rest of my life about. That's the power of what we do. Yeah. Uh, not everyone understands it. Not everyone realizes it. Not everyone appreciates it. But we who choose this industry as a profession, we are warriors. Mm. And we do the hardest work that is imaginable. We meet people where they are and we invite them on this journey, this challenge to be changed. Mm -hmm. But the promise is, the covenant is, you won't be harmed. You'll be elevated. You'll be liberated. Changed, definitely. Yeah. And that's a huge, first of all, responsibility to take on. And it is a huge sense of freedom once it is achieved. Did um, you? Oh, go ahead, yeah, go please. Ahead. I was going to say, did you move up to New York immediately following graduation? I did not graduate from Wilmington College. You went to now, as I described, it was a pristine campus, yeah. Quaker school, yeah. very few people of color. Uh, what it did for me, countless advantages. But the one that changed the course of my the course of my life when I was going to school, it was de rigueur for a student to spend his junior year abroad. Mm. Oh. And I chose to study in, naively so, my choice was made naively, <laughs> I chose to study in Denmark. Now, you have to understand that I was preternatural, I was precocious. Uh -huh. You mentioned in the introduction that I'm a Capricorn, yeah. and that's an indicator of Capricorn. We're old when we're young, and we're young when we're old. <laughs> but um, a reaction to the way I grew up, and let's just put it under one big umbrella, racism. My reaction to that um, sometimes approach anti-Americanism, mm -hmm. anti-capitalism. So when I made my choice to study abroad, I looked at Scandinavia because mm. of its reputation for social welfare. Yes. Yeah, totally. And my experience there continued the job of opening my mind, but also opening my heart it was in Scandinavia, 1966, that I experienced the exact opposite of what I was experiencing in the United States. In the United States, I'm the scum of the earth. In Scandinavia, I was like the second coming. People, it's 66 now. People, really? had, people had never been that close to an American Negro. And I've had a, I had my Jimi Hendrix. Yes, yeah. you did. Naturally yeah. and everything. Yeah. People wanted to touch my skin. People wanted to touch my hair, right? And I'm thinking, wow, uh -huh. I didn't know life could be this good. <laughs> and then to have this very unique perspective, to be from the United States of America, which was having the veil of political innocence torn from its eyes in the middle 60s, to be in Europe, to be in Scandinavia, and to have this perspective, to look back on where you had come from and go, wow, that's where I live. That's where I'm returning. That's the image that the entire world has of the United States of America. And I'm representing it. So what that did for my head was made me understand that when I returned to America, that Quaker campus was too small. Not the same yeah. anymore. It's not the same. I needed to be where the action was, where the yes. changes were being made. And that ended up the University of Wisconsin, Madison, Madison which mm -hmm. was one of the hot campuses in the 60s. Yeah. I mean, there was the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. there was Berkeley, but Madison, Wisconsin was really the center of the political revolution. It was in 1960. 
70 when I graduated mm-hmm. that I started my professional career in Chicago in the musical hair. I'd come down from Madison to audition, ultimately got the gig. To answer to your question is that I then spent, this is 69, yeah. I then spent the next four years living in Chicago. And then in early 1973, I arrived in New York and was received as a Chicago actor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. very interesting. Yeah. Very why, interesting. Why, why did you leave Chicago to go to New York? Because I had, after 15 months of doing hair, <laughs> which, was, which was a lovely baptism into the marketplace, oh, if you yeah. will, yes. professional theater. Sure. I joined the Organic Theater Company, mm-hmm. which was one of the theater companies which defined what was then the burgeoning off-loop theater movement, which, which is now helmed by Steppenwolf. Uh-huh. Yes. The most successful production that the Organic Theater Company conceived was an episodic science fiction space adventure called Warp. Yeah. In Exclamation which, mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> several, several of them. Yeah. <laughs> In which I created the role of Alexander the Unconquerable, ruler of the sixth dimension. Yes. Okay? Yes, you did. <laughs> that is a title. It's a, a mouthful. Yeah, it's a mouthful. I, and I lived up to it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> And that's what brought me to New York in uh, January 1973. Yep. It's on Broadway at the Ambassador Theater. Two weeks of previews, two weeks of performance, and it was summarily dismissed by New York critics. And we closed on Valentine's Day, 1973. And I thought my ultimate destination is New York. I'm here. I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of but I'm here why go back to Chicago and try to find another way to get so that's when I separated from the organic theater company and did what many uh, young actors do in their salad days you you trade your domestic abilities Mm -hmm. for a place to sleep Mm -hmm. a friend of mine uh you might know of this name, Charlotte Crossley. Mm-hmm. She, okay, uh, for those who may not know Charlotte Crossley, she did the national tour of Hairspray as Motormouth Mabel. Right. Mm-hmm. She has other credits than that, but that's the most recent. Mm-hmm. She was doing Jesus Christ Superstar at the time, living in Chelsea, and she allowed me to sleep on her couch. And in return... When she came home, the dishes would be washed. Yeah. Huh? That yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah right? sure. Or the house would be cleaned, whatever. That was the spring of 1973. Uh-huh. And in the fall of 1974, I was rehearsing for The Wiz. Wow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Always mm-hmm. working. Yeah. Always working. That, I mean, that's what people say about me. Andre, you're always working. I said, well, that's flattering. But if I was always working, then I <laughs> I would have wasted away by now. (laughs) However, I know what they mean. Right. Uh, And it's not at all undoable. It's not impossible. And it's something that everyone can do if you you focus your Mm -hmm. energy, if you focus your dreams, Mm -hmm. if you focus your epiphanies and not pursue blessings that do not have your name on it. That's where I find many of us in the arts go astray mm-hmm. because there's so 
We have big eyes like horses. You ever wonder why horses have blinders? Mm -hmm. They have big eyes. They see a lot, which they must as a wild animal, but when you domesticate them, you want them to see the path that they must travel, Mm -hmm. that they must focus on. It's the same thing uh, with those of us who choose the arts. There's so much glitter, bling, Mm -hmm. so much distraction, so much fool's gold out there that we sometimes lose our way and in many situations find out too late, oh, that belongs to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then we have to find our way back. Mm. So if we can, during those times when we think we aren't working, when we have time on our hands, Mm -hmm. if we take that time to cultivate all the other stuff that we need to have a sustainable career and a long career, that's part of the work. Boy, that is... That's cultivating patience, cultivating mm-hmm. long suffering, cultivating the art of listening, cultivating the discipline that says, the universe always says yes. It's a cornucopia that's dumping abundance. Not arbitrarily. What we have to do is go into that treasure chest of abundance and receive what is ours and let go of everything else. I know it sounds philosophical. No, it's so but good. But that's the alchemy. That's the alchemy I'm talking about. It's so good for young and people. Have you hear. have you always been aware of this alchemy? Has this or is this something that's been developed? Well, as certainly, time goes by? certainly, it's developing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's something that I've always been aware of, and it's something that as I continue to grow as an artist and become the best Andre de Shields that I can, Mm -hmm. it is something that I use as my litmus test. Doing the whiz, going back back to that, um, how did that job come about for you? Or that story, I should say. You, you seem like such, you're so there, devoted to telling stories. I don't even want to call them jobs anymore. Yeah. Shows. Oh, oh, I'm so, well, okay. You know? Please remember the question because I'm now going to do a sidebar. When I was growing up, I would hear my older siblings refer to their job as a slave. Mm. Oh, I got to go to my slave today. And we would understand that they meant job. Yeah. Early in my years here in um, New York, one of the people with whom I had made a lifelong friendship with from the University of Wisconsin, I was complaining, I need a job. So the next time I saw my friend, he brought me an application for the post office. And I said, what's this? He said, you said you needed a job. (laughs) They're hiring at the post office. And I hit myself in the head, I got it. Mm -hmm. I don't need a job, I don't want a job. I want the appropriate proper place in this profession that I've chose, mm-hmm. chosen. And that is not a job. Telling the story of the Wiz, mm-hmm. how did that come about for you? I'm in New York. It's now six months later from the time that the um, warp had closed. Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean about putting on the blinders. I could not have known it, but when I was performing Warp, who saw me in this show? 
Ellen Stewart, who founded La Mama. Mama. Yeah. Right? Of course. When the show closed, she had one of her emissaries, if you will, mm -hmm. reach out to me, brought me down to La Mama, and she said, if you want, La Mama will be your artistic home in New York. Oh, wow. <sighs> From Ellen Stewart. Ellen Stewart. My God. I'll tell you exactly what she said. I, so I sometimes don't tell this story because people get a little bent out of shape. But Ellen said to me, okay, Warp was episodic. We opened episode one mm -hmm. on Broadway thinking that we were going to get to episode two mm -hmm. and three. The show closed during episode one. We didn't get to two or three. Okay, because the character that I created did not appear until episode two, mm -hmm. I worked as the standby for the male characters in episode, episode one. Mm -hmm. One of the actors who played a character called Symax, S-Y-M-A-X, who was described as a cosmic ape. Okay, uh, twisted his ankle and could not go on. I was the under the standby. I went on as this character. That's what Ellen Stewart saw. Oh wow. Okay, now I wanted to set that up because remember, Cymax is a cosmic ape. Mm -hmm. I wanted to set that up because when I was brought to Ellen, she says, "You want to be a monkey? You be my monkey." Meaning it very affectionately, yes. mm -hmm. right? It was one of those moments where you're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I, I now, I'm six months into New York, and I have an artistic home offered to me. That was 1973. I have worked at La Mama every year from 73 to 2002. Oh, my God. In different capacities. But it is your home. But you've had yes. a consistent relationship. Yeah, a consistent that, that relationship. Is... Ellen Stewart was doing things with theater that was frightening to the establishment, yes. if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First of all, La Mama had numerous. I didn't ever count them. But I, I know there were at least 20 appendages around the world. There was La Mama uh, Spoleto. There was La Mama Korea. There was La Mama China. There was mm -hmm. La Mama Argentina. Yeah. There was La Mama Romania, that kind of thing. Yeah. She was bringing theater companies from around the world to perform at 74A, East 4th Street. And in many situations, the company could not speak English, and mm -hmm. they performed in their native tongue. And audiences could not speak their native tongue, but would go to see these outrageous <laughs> um, productions that were obviously alien, but at the same time universal. Yeah. Yeah. Because Ellen believed that it wasn't necessary to understand the language. It was necessary to understand the emotion. Now, we're trying to answer that question about the whiz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. I want to hear more about Alan Stewart, but I forgot. All right, so the two epiphanies as a child that I had in my life, one was the film version of Cabin in the Sky. The other was the film version of... Uh, the Wizard of Oz. Those oh, are the wow. two. Those are the two experiences that that, in conjunction with my dream to be an entertainer, put me two thirds the way on my path. The final third, which is how do you legitimize the combination of a dream and an epiphany, yeah. is be cast in a role, right? So that you can show your stuff. I've already explained that with Walter the Younger in A Raisin in the Sun yes. yeah. during my sophomore yeah. year. Yeah. So. The, the thirds are there. The three parts of the path is there. 
the dream, the epiphany, and the legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So now all it takes is the fortitude to keep pushing forward. Just keep going. Yes, keep going forward. When I heard about the Wiz, I thought, oh, wow, wouldn't I love to be the wizard? This relates to the alchemy. Mm -hmm. Because the traditional image we have of alchemy is a wizened old guy with a pointed Mm -hmm. hat on his head with a big spoon stirring in a cauldron, Mm -hmm. right? We fast forward to when the auditions are actually being held. So I go in, and they have me in the lineup for the scarecrow, and I get cut. Then they have me in the lineup for the um, lion, I get cut. Then they have me in the lineup for the tin man, I get cut. And I'm about to get dismissed from the process, Mm -hmm. which is okay, because I didn't want to be the scarecrow, I didn't want to be the lion, I didn't want to be the tin man. Now, here's something that, you can, that doesn't happen any longer. Two things that don't happen any longer, which are magical and, uh, and, and I think missing from the theatrical experience. One of them is in 73, 74, when you auditioned for a show, you actually auditioned in the theater that the show was coming into. Mm-hmm. So we were auditioning in the Majestic. Mm. Stage manager walking into the wings... Mr. DeShields, you're next. Looking into this yawning, dark chasm, hearing people but not seeing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's alchemical and that's magical. Yes. Totally. What can you do with those elements now? Oh, yeah. Aye. Right? Uh. <clears throat> that's one element of magic, of alchemy that's missing. The other element is persuading the powers that be that they haven't seen you at your best. So I begged Ken Harper, the producer, I said, I want to be the wizard. Please let me audition for the wizard. And he said, no, you're a little too young. We're looking for someone like the Frank Morgan actor who did Mm. the Wizard of Oz in the film. Please, please, okay. So I get sent away because they're not seeing the wizard that I get called back. Now remember, this is 1970, late 73, mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. 74. This is the decade when men generally, but black men particularly, could be beautiful. Mm. Big hair, mm-hmm. tight jeans that, that uh, mm-hmm. belled at mm-hmm. the bottom. Yeah. You know, skimpy shirts. You could show a little skin. Yeah. You could wear earrings, you know. It was all right. Yeah. It was the, um, we were, it was the decade of permission. So when I knew I was coming back, I pulled my hair out to that Jimi Hendrix bush. I put on my silver platforms that had studs on the sides, which I still own. Yes. Right. (laughs) I put on my James Brown hot pants, mm-hmm. right? I put on my hippie halter that had love written across it. I put on, put on my Mai Sai earrings. <laughs> and I went back and I sang Wilson Pickett's Midnight Hour, right? That was the audition song for you. That was the audition yes. Mid- Midnight <laughs> Hour. I right. love it. I'm going to wait till the midnight hour. That's when my love comes tumbling down. 
I'm gonna wait till the midnight hour when there's no one else around. I'm gonna kiss you, girl, and hold you and do all the things I told you in the midnight hour. Oh, yeah, oh, yes, I am. Now, wait a minute. You know, oh, I oh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Now that's a story to be told. <laughs> now wait, and this is the, this is the beautiful truth of it. I'm telling you this story because it happened. There are people who were there who will tell you the same story. So I'm not embellishing uh-huh. this. Charlie Smalls, who was the composer, stood up and said, "That's my whiz." <laughs> I left the audition. I mean, this is a movie now. This is a film now. Yeah, right. I left the audition dressed as I was, doing jetés <laughs> yeah. down 44th Street. You know, no one said we agree with you, Charlie, and here's the yeah. contract. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> you know, I got the desired results. Oh. Producer said we're looking for Frank Morgan. Charlie Small says no, we're looking for Andre DeShields. <laughs> That's right. Oh that is my. right. And although that brand has been challenged over the years, uh, it still stands. Oh. Andre DeShields is the whiz. Oh, yes. Oh. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply do you have any memories of uh, the process of putting that story together? The I mean, story of The Wiz? Yeah. Oh, yes. The Wiz did a three-city pre-Broadway tryout. Mm-hmm. The first city was Baltimore, Maryland. Welcome home. Hello. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you talk about dreams coming true. Uh-huh. We opened The Wiz in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Andre DeShields is The Wiz. Mm-hmm. The family, you asked me earlier, did your family support your career? Well, now it's like, oh, we always knew it. Mm-hmm. We always knew. <laughs> yeah. Of course, everyone, the whole neighborhood knew. Right, then. exactly. Yeah. And the neighborhood t- turned out. I could have died then and gone to heaven. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. My nieces, my nephews were there. My brothers yeah. and sisters were there. My mother was there. You know, it's like, what you, you wanted to be a dancer? Well, when you see me mm-hmm. dance, I'm using your feet. I'm doing it for you. Yeah. Dad, you wanted to be a singer? Well, when you hear me saying, I'm using your voice. Now, the next two cities were Detroit and Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. where we got a chilling, I shouldn't say chilling, although it was. Mm -hmm. It was a chilly response, which was chilling. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, The general notion from the critics was that why do we need a black version of this brilliance that Judy Garland has already 
blessed us with. Mm-hmm. Now, in retrospect, the answer is, as brilliant as the Judy Garland film is, it's also brilliantly exclusive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. When you get Stephanie Mills to inhabit the role of Dorothy, then it becomes universal. Yes. Every little girl says, oh, that's my story. I can relate to that. The third element I want to mention is that when the show arrived on Broadway on January 5th, 1975, that was the opening night, Mm -hmm. the closing notice was also posted. Ken Harper sold the rights to The Wiz to, I think, Universal. It might have been 20th Century Fox. But he sold the movie rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah took that money and in many ways innovated the live action commercial for Broadway. Oh, right. Because he knew that we weren't reaching the audience that would make the difference. Yeah. The audience being African Americans who theretofore had always perceived Broadway, the great white way, (laughs) as inhospitable terrain. Yeah. So what we had to do was to use technology in its infancy and reach into the homes of the people who can make the difference. How do you do that? With a commercial. Mm-hmm. While they're sitting on their couches, they see this commercial that says, there's something happening about you and you're not responding to it. So when our first church group, if you will. That's what I'd heard a lot of preachers had, mm-hmm. had yeah. spread the word too. When our first church group came in, I don't mean to say it was a fait accompli, but even in the 21st century, the most powerful marketing device is word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you have groups of people leaving the theater saying, hey, you got to see this. Mm-hmm. You've got to see this. Then people will invest their money and go see it. And that's what happened with The Wiz. Not only did our art transform a community of people, but a community of people paid us back and transform our art into a long-running experience. Right. True. A film and a live television Which then infected production. even more people. Yes, and, yeah. And, and exactly. More, spreads, more people, spreads, which is spreads, all because yeah. of... So, so your closing notice came down eventually, and, and you were oh, able yes. to... Stayed <laughs> up for the, it stayed up for the two weeks, Whew. and then on that final Sunday, we had a oh. ceremony when the, Ken Hopper took it down. Wow. And we were like... Yes! yes! <laughs> totally. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine what was it like working with Jeffrey Holder. The initial artistic team, the position that Jeffrey filled was costume designer. He was not the director. Mm-hmm. Huh. In this pre-Broadway three-city tryout, Manny Eisenberg, who is the general manager for the Schuberts, yeah. scratching his head, you know, what's we, we know we have a great family show here. What's... What's wrong? Mm. I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to lay any blame. But I'm going to tell you how it was resolved. One day, and this is when you say overnight, this was overnight. One day, we're working with Gilbert Moses and his associate director, Bill Duke. And the next day, we come in to rehearse. And there's Jeffrey Holder standing in the center of the stage. I don't know if you know what his um, familiar garb was but a big black hat mm. and a long black cape. Yes. I mean, he was theater walk yeah. on two feet. And there he was standing in the middle of the stage. You know, we come in, and he says, Don't worry. Follow mother. 
So we come up on the stage, right? He creates a circle. He lights two um, hands, hands full of sage. Great. Right? And he leads us through the theater, right? Dispelling the evil spirits. Yes. The negative uh, intelligence. Yes. As it were. And Manny Eisenberg announces that not only is Jeffrey Holder the costume designer, he's now the director. Now, if you can imagine the Big Bang, right? <laughs> Starting off with a spot this small and so compressed yeah. that it can do nothing but explode. That's what Jeffrey did for The Wiz. And then after The Wiz comes Ain't Misbehavin. Is that right? Yes. After The Wiz comes Ain't Misbehavin. And telling the stories in song of Fats Waller, how did, were, did you grow up listening to that music? I did not grow up listening to a Fats Waller score, yeah. Mm -hmm. But certainly in my house, my father and my mother would sing songs from their youth, right? And one of them, first of all, was Black and Blue. Yeah, my mother would sing Black and Blue. Um, Ain't Misbehaving was one, mm -hmm. and my mother. Remember, my mother wanted to dance. Yeah, my mother would dance the snake hips. Really? Now, if you recall Ain't Misbehaving, my tour de force moment, my stop the show moment uh -huh. in Ain't Misbehaving was as the viper to a song called The Viper's Drag Reefer's Song. Mm -hmm. It was a conflation mm -hmm. of two moments, one, the instrumental from Fats Waller, mm -hmm. and the dance from Snake Hips Tucker. And, of course, I, I'm, this is the man who hits himself in the head often. <laughs> so I'm hitting myself in the head again. This is what my mother used to do around the house. Uh, I certainly don't mean to dis diminish the contribution of Arthur Faria, the choreographer of uh, Ain't Misbehaving. He's the one who uh, taught us all what we had to do mm -hmm. from the perspective of period. Yes. And he's also the one who trained in Balinese dance. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Ain't Misbehaving, when you look at the Viper, and you see all the flourishes in the fingers, that's Arthur Faria teaching Balinese dance. Oh, wow. But when you see the hips rocking, <laughs> that's my mother. That's your mother. <laughs> <laughs> she finally got on stage. She did. She finally yeah, got yeah, on yeah. stage. I could not have, we could not have at the time told you the exact path Ain't Misbehaving was going to take, but we all knew that we were cooking something special. We're back at the cauldron. We've got a recipe that really has something never before experienced. And the proof of the matter is that what critics wanted to categorized as a review, took the Tony for Best Musical. Now, to be a musical, you have to have a story. You have to have a book. Mm -hmm. And if you, when you, when you put up Ain't Misbehaving, all you get is a score. But in that score are the connective tissues, yeah. are the inter interstices, I think that's mm -hmm. the term, that give you 
a complete narrative that connect the songs in such a way, because the songs are stories unto themselves. Completely. Yes. But completely. when you connect those stories, you get a look at the complete life of this jazz and comedic genius mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. It was Fats, Thomas Fats Waller. Brilliant. Amos Behaven was the perfect show, not only because of the cast. The other storytellers were Nell Carter, mm. Ken Page, mm. Amelia McQueen, mm-hmm. Charlene Woodard, and Andre DeShields. And Andre DeShields. Now yes, please. Yes, sign me up. <laughs> preserved on film, correct? Well, yeah, preserved on film for television. Yes, right. yes. Absolutely. But still, there's a there's and a well record, done, a very well Good. done yeah. with a live audience on the NBC soundstage that Johnny Carson would do his mm-hmm. show on. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, and they built a cabaret wow. on the soundstage. That's wonderful. And yeah. we performed the show for a live audience. And one of the issues was how do we do the Vipers drag, which which starts stage right and moves stage left. Now, you could put up a long shot, but it would mm-hmm. look very flat. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the gentleman's name, but I remember his Herculean, Herculean task to put a camera on his shoulder and follow me. And then when you watch it, you don't see any jiggling Uh-oh. except for the hips. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's the yes. jiggling you want to see. <laughs> But it's a, I mean, it's as if there was a camera on a tripod. But that's a man. That's a man holding with a, that. With yeah. a camera on his shoulder. Before Steadicam. Before Steadicam. Yeah. <clears throat> it's preserved beautifully. And yeah. it is, sorry, going back to what you were saying before, it is the perfect review. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about the Harlem Nocturne, Nocturne. you did? Yeah. In 1984, I First, say. I should say to you that Ain't Misbehaving was based on an idea yeah. by Mario Horwitz. Harlem Nocturne was... Uh, an idea written by Murray Horowitz and myself. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of the conception, it was shared by all of the members of the company, which included Mark Shaman mm-hmm. as the pianist musical director mm-hmm. and included three marvelous dark divas. Mm-hmm. One of them is Frida Williams. One of them is Elliot English, who has gone on to a very attractive TV career and the third was Deborah Bird and part of my La Mama story is mm-hmm. it was created in the basement cabaret at La Mama oh. in 1984 which uh-huh. is now their archive uh-huh. and it played uh, there for many months <clears throat> and it was seen by Barry and Fran Weisler mm. oh. and they're the ones who moved it briefly to Broadway mm-hmm. Another one of those inventions that was ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, it didn't last long. However, it, it put another notch in my belt, if you will. What were some of the plays, I mean, besides The Raisin in the Sun, that you found to be transformative for you? During the 80s and the uh, 90s, I could have been called the poster boy for non-traditional casting. And not only was it deliberate on an artistic basis, but it was politically deliberate because that concept of roles being the exclusive domain of white actors needed to be exploded. So I had an opportunity to play Sheridan Whiteside in The Man Who Came to Dinner. Fabulous. Fabulous. What theater did you do that at? This was at the Wisconsin Theater at the University of Wisconsin, but this was post-student career. I was a professional performer being invited back to Mark to celebrate the 30th year of the Madison Repertory 
that I did the first its debut performance in 1960, the summer of 69. Their debut show was The Fantastics, and I was El Gallo. Oh, my gosh. So, again, these are precedents that are being set in a career that continues to pay off for me. Yeah. Now, you, you didn't say colorblind casting before. I think you said technicolor. Technicolor. That's yeah. a, I like that. I love that. Can I steal that from you? Oh, Do you mind if I, if I start using that? No, please use it because colorblind casting, certainly in the language that unions use, yeah. uh-huh. non-traditional casting and colorblind casting relate to a certain group of protective demographics. We're talking about people of color, <laughs> We're talking about uh, women. Mm-hmm. We're talking about seniors, mm-hmm. and in some situations, disabilities. You're talking, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm, but this is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. When you include disabilities, when you include Asian Americans, and then any other hyphenated American mm-hmm. that you want, and now when you include transgender, mm-hmm. it really is Technicolor. Yeah. It's a great way of putting it's, it. It's, the white, no, it's yeah. that white light, that exclusive <laughs> white light, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being refracted through a prism, and you go, oh, my dear. White is all the colors in the world. Yeah. It's a good way of looking at it, and a lot of that started with Lamont. And Wisconsin. I had no idea that Wisconsin was so progressive. Yeah. Madison. Madison always has Madison. been. Madison. I did not know that. Yeah. Yes. I, feel, I feel ignorant. Yes, I definitely. Definitely progressive. How yeah. important was it for you to direct the Colored Museum? It was important for me for two reasons. First of all, when it played the public theater, mm-hmm. and they held auditions, mm-hmm. and I auditioned wanting to play Miss Raj, mm-hmm. right? Why not? Exactly. Yeah. That, that killer monologue. Uh, didn't get the gig. That's cool. Dennis Zachek, who was the artistic director of the Victory Gardens Theater mm-hmm. at the time, and who is still in my life, a mentor in my life, mm-hmm. and who was also the standing artistic director when the Victory Gardens received the Tony for Outstanding Regional Theater, mm-hmm. was the man who said, you should direct. Mm-hmm. And when people say that to you, the smart response is, thank you. When are you hiring me? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. And he said, are you available? And I said, what are we talking about? He said, the Colored Museum. It's, again, you, you have to stop a moment and realize it's, it's not even a moment, it's an instant. You have to stop an instant and realize you weren't meant to play Miss Raj. You were meant to direct it for the mm-hmm. Victory Gardens wow. Theater, for yeah. which I won my first Joseph Jefferson yes. Award. Yes, congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations. That's why I say the universe always says yes. Yeah. yeah. Don't spend your time chasing other people's but, dreams. But you've got to be open to it. And oh, you've yeah. And always be open been open to it, to it. Oh, yeah. it too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But even if you're not open to it, even if you've turned your back on the universe, yeah. it is still saying yes. Mm. Yes. 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 And I love how versatile you are in terms of the stories you're, you tell, the stories that you're open to telling. Because, you know, just as in terms of the fear in which we live since 9 11, mm-hmm. and now we live by this adage if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the adage I live by if you know something, share something. Yes. Not only 
not only does it assist the person with whom you share it, it allows you to let go of it. It allows you to empty yourself so the universe can fill you again. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the way I say it. But George Bernard Shaw, a brilliant man, as we all know, also quite a brilliant misanthrope. This is what George Bernard Shaw says, and I might be paraphrasing slightly, but I'm going to get the kernel of it. If you have an apple, and I have an apple, and you give me your apple, and I give you my apple, we each still have one apple. But if you have an idea, and I have an idea, and you give me your idea, and I give you my idea, we each now have two ideas. If you want to experience new horizons, you have to be willing to let go of the shore for a very long time. And then some people scratch their heads about that. I said, well, now, think of that in terms of Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was looking for a new horizon. What if he was attached to Europe? He never would have taken off. Mm-hmm. What if in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, which took three months to cross mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. ship at that time, he wasn't seeing land, and he looked behind him, he wasn't seeing land? That's the kind of adventurous exploration you must do as an actor. Yeah. You haven't found the character yet, and you have given up the information that you had been uh, holding on to in search of mm-hmm. this character. Mm-hmm. Do you give up in the middle of your adventure, of your journey? No. You keep going until you see land. How do you as an actor approach a role? I look for the music of the character, even if it isn't a musical. Mm -hmm. Every character is singing a song. Without a song, you're not human. Now, I don't mean to say that you have to have a money note or that you have to know how to carry a melody. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is inside of each of us, because we all are the stuff of the Big Bang. We all are stardust. As a matter of fact, it's Joni Mitchell who says it best. We are stardust, we are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Mm -hmm. That's the Woodstock song that Mm -hmm. she wrote and that Crosby, Stills, and Nash sang at, Mm -hmm. at Woodstock. I take that as one of my mantras. So when I'm inhabiting a character, I look for the stardust. I look for the gold I look for the path back to the garden Mm -hmm. in that character. And the garden, right, is the music of the spheres. Mm -hmm. That's why I say I'm searching for the song. Each of us has a melody in us. Now, once I find the melody, then I look for what part of me is in the character. After I establish those two things, then I ask the question that we're all taught to ask. What does the character want? Mm because that's what moves the character forward. But it's, it's, the, it's a common ground, it's a commonality, it's a sense of humanity that has to be established first. Mm. We are all remembering or forgetting the same thing. Mm-hmm. We are all losing or achieving the same thing. We are essentially all on the same path or the same journey. We take different paths, mm-hmm. but we are essentially all on the same journey. Which is why uh, casting by color is evil. 
It really is. It's unconscionable. There are directors who encourage that kind of approach to a character. There are some that don't encourage it because you, the actor is really autonomous in a situation like that. Mm. I mean, the actor, I follow direction well. But whatever I am, whatever character I am inhabiting, be it, be it a supporting character, be it an adversary, be it an heroic character, whatever character I am inhabiting is the central character of the narrative. <laughs> That's how I approach it. It's amazing what, what it can do, what the theater can do. Yes. And you've taken this with you. I've taken it with me, and I continue to take it with me and use it as a tool mm-hmm. uh, to, to not judge from a point of view of bias or prejudice or even predisposition. Allow people, allow experiences, allow life to unfold its many blessings, its many phenomena, and understand it's made for your pleasure not for your discomfort. Mm. It's made for your pleasure. Surrender to it. Have a good time. Live long. That's my plan anyway. Amen. I became a septuagenarian on the 12th of uh, January. Happy belated birthday, Thank Mike. you happy so much. Happy belated birthday. And I'm working on the next 70 years. Yes, <laughs> give us more. Please give us more. Next week, we've got everyone's favorite and longest-running Phantom of the Opera. Howard McGillan joins us. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. What they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.